between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. Welcome to Hither Came Conan, the podcast with only one rule, never swing a broadsword in the house, or an axe, or really any big-bladed weapon. I'm your host, my name is Steven, and today we keep on trucking down that Marvel Conan highway with Conan the Barbarian number 17 from Marvel Comics. This issue sports a cover date of August 1972, but it hit the stands in May. It sold for 20 cents, and it is entitled The Gods of Balsagath. The story was written by Roy Thomas with pencils by Gil Kane, inks by Ralph Reese, and the letters were by John Costanza. Into the boat! As the issue opens, Conan is a passenger on a Turanian galley that currently finds itself under attack by pirates in the Villiet Sea. As Conan battles with the pirates, one of them creeps up from behind and whacks Conan on the back of the head with the flat of his axe, knocking Conan unconscious. Conan wakes to find himself lashed to the mast of the pirate ship. He is the sole survivor from the Turanian galley, and was spared by the leader of the pirates, who turns out to be Fafnir, one of the thieves Conan met briefly way back in issue number six, Devil Wings over Shadazar. Fafnir, a Vannerman who should have died back in issue number six, but didn't, he's not quite dead, tells Conan that he spared him because he needs all the men he can get. The pirate vessel has found itself in some danger in the white mists of the sea, and before any sort of deal can be struck between Conan and Fafnir, the ship runs aground on a hidden reef and begins to go down. Fafnir frees Conan as they plunge into the sea where Conan fights a shark, saving Fafnir's life. They each then cling to a piece of the ship that drifts through the white mists to find an island beyond. Once on shore, Conan challenges Fafnir to a fight. The Vannerman people, it seems, would raid into Samaria often, and Conan sees nothing but an enemy in Fafnir. They fight for a bit until Fafnir stops stating that they will fight no more. And as Conan looks deep into the Vannerman's eyes, he too agrees to stop with all the fighting, and the two become BFFs, barbarian friends forever. People, let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loves me till the end. Suddenly they hear an inhuman shrieking from the jungle as a half-naked ginger hottie in a metal bra comes crashing out of the trees pursued by some sort of man-sized lizard dinosaur creature. The barbarian bros kill the lizard dinosaur thing, though really I don't think that the Vanir are considered barbarians, but I'm going to ignore that if it means that I get to make more jokes. Anyway, the barbarian bros kill the lizard dinosaur thing and learn that the woman is a fellow Vannerman named Kiri, who tells them that they are on an ancient island 
and that she also was shipwrecked on the island. But as she has red hair like the sea goddess Ayla, she was taken by the island dwellers as an object of worship. The high priest Gothen, however, took over and killed those loyal to Kiri, dumping her here across the lagoon, hoping that the lizard dinosaur thing would eat her. Conan and Fafnir, desperate for food, agreed to help Kiri get her kingdom back, fulfilling an ancient prophecy. The three reach the imposing castle and march right on in, relying on the power of the prophecy that two men from the sea will destroy the reptile guardian, which, of course, they did. Gothen's puppet king, Ska, has his champion, Verterix, challenge Conan, but after a brief battle, the onlookers discover that Verterix is an empty suit of armor that fights like a man. Kiri realizes that Gothen controls the armor and using her mirrored headdress reflects the sun into Gothen's eyes, causing him to lose concentration. The armor crumbles to the ground and Gothen and Ska flee, leaving Kiri, Fafner, and Conan in charge. Everybody out! All right, folks, get your maps out because I'm getting ready to talk about that most entertaining and interesting of subjects, Hyborian geography. Are you ready? Then we'll begin. So way back in issue number 11, Rogues in the House, which takes place in a Corinthian city-state in the western part of Corinthia near the lost city of Lanzhou. Well, as that issue comes to an end, Conan announces that he's heading off to Argos, which is on the west coast of Hyboria. Since then, he's been traveling in a somewhat easterly direction. In issue 12, The Dweller in the Dark, he's still in Corinthia, but over near the eastern border in the city of Zaman, further east than where he was at the end of issue 11. Issue 13, Web of the Spider God, Conan travels to the north and to the east to Yazud in Zamora, which, if you're looking at your maps, takes him even further from Argos. In issue 14, a sword called Stormbringer, Conan appears to finally be moving on to Argos when he travels southwest into central Koth and remains there through issue number 15, The Green Empress of Melnibene. Issue 16, however, The Frost Giant's Daughter, is obviously a tale from Conan's past because it takes place in the north, in Vanaheim or Asgard. I don't think it really actually clarifies, but it does take place sometime during the same time frame as issue number one when Conan was working as a mercenary for the Icer. So basically, we can ignore issue 16. But now, here we are with issue 17, The Gods of Balsagoth. And if we can assume that the series is being told in linear time, despite the events of issue number 16 happening in the past, then again, Conan appears to have no desire at all to go to Argos, as he proclaimed back in issue 11, because now he finds himself in the Vilayet Sea, which is even further east than Zamora. So the question then becomes, why? Why ask why? Why has Conan continued to travel east instead of west? Well, as far as issue number 17 is concerned, it all comes down to two people, Barry Windsor Smith and Gil Kane. Well, mostly Gil Kane, really, who is, of course, the penciler on this issue, but is also a huge Conan fan 
going back to the 50s. And he's the guy that kind of helped Roy Thomas become a fan as well. I only mentioned Barry Windsor Smith here because, after all, he left Conan, which meant they needed a new penciler. So back when Conan was still in development, Roy's first choice for penciler was John Buscema. But Buscema was big time. He got top page rates, and the publisher in this case wasn't keen on paying those rates for Conan, considering that one, it was a new, untested book, and two, they were already paying the Robert E. Howard estate a certain amount per issue to be able to use Conan. So they quickly moved on from Buscema. Next in line was Gil Kane. Unfortunately, as much as he loved Conan, Gil made the top rates just like Buscema, and he couldn't take the pay rates either. And so the job went to Barry Windsor Smith, who was at the time a new artist, so new that he hadn't even started using the Windsor in his name. Just Barry Smith. And of course, being new, he was only all too agreeable to accept the cheaper page rates, and he became our penciler here on Conan. After over a year and a half on the book, however, Barry began to feel that he deserved a bit more money, and I think we can all agree with him. But here's the thing. By this point, the book had become more successful. Not what it would become, but it was selling enough to pay the higher rates just not high enough for Barry. So Barry left and Gil jumped in to fill that void. So what does any of this have to do with Conan's insistence on continually traveling in the opposite direction from which he wanted to go since issue number 11? Well, for issue 17, Gil wanted to adapt one of his favorite non-Conan Robert E. Howard stories, The Gods of Baal Sagath, which of course is what issue number 17 is. The prose version of the same name, written, as I said, by Robert E. Howard, featured another of his barbarian creations, Turlo Black O'Brien, whose ship is captured by Vikings. Well, replace Turlo with Conan and Vikings with pirates, and you're on your way. But that meant placing Conan on a ship in some sort of big body of water. In this case, to the east of Koth lies the Villiet Sea, and so that's where they put him. Now, frankly, I don't understand why the story necessitated Conan traveling east to the Sea of Villayette, considering that the Sighing Lake in Koth, which is where we last saw Conan, if, again, we assume that the Frost Giant's daughter is a story set in Conan's past, and I think we do, but looking at the map, it appears that the Western Sea and the coast of Argos is just as far from the Sighing Lake to the west as the Villayette Sea is to the east. But Roy and Gil chose east, and so that's where Conan went. Now, Roy does talk about this in his book, Barbarian, Barbarian Life, Life, A Literary Biography of Conan the Barbarian, Volume 1, and does address why Conan turned east instead of continuing west to Argos. But his reasoning is, as I've already stated, they needed to put him in a big body of water, and so they chose the Villiette Sea to the east, which, again, doesn't quite explain it. I think what all this means is that I'm just going to have to try to ignore this whole why is Conan still traveling east when he wanted to go west aspect of this book, because I think it might just drive me crazy. You're off your chump. So I'll just fight back against my baser instincts, and we'll move on to some more information before I get into what I thought of the issue. 
So the original prose story had been published first in the October 1931 issue of Weird Tales magazine, which was a year and two months earlier than The Phoenix on the Sword, the first Conan story to see publication. Turlow O'Brien, however, only got one more story, whereas Conan, well, they're still writing stories about Conan today. Go ahead, Conan. But The Gods of Balsagath was then published a number of times over the years and even saw publication in paperback form under the title The Blonde Goddess of Balsagath by Avon Publishing in 1950. It's also part of Project Gutenberg of Australia, which, as the site says, Project Gutenberg of Australia ebooks are created from printed editions which are in the public domain in Australia. Which means that you can read it there if you want. I have included the link in the show notes. But the adaptation, that is issue 17, takes the character of Athelstain the Saxon from the prose story and uses instead Fafnir the Vannerman, who appeared first and last back in issue number six of Conan the Barbarian, Devil Wings over Shadazar. If you remember, that issue opened with Conan watching as two thieves, Black Rat and Fafnir, fought over their most current haul, which ended with Black Rat stabbing Fafnir, who appeared to die as Conan leapt in, beat up Fafnir, and took the booty for himself. Well, old Roy, he rather liked the name Fafnir, and so he brought the Vannerman back to life here in issue number 17 with the giant ginger stating, Black Rat, that pipsqueak could never thrust a sword hard enough to spit a sparrow. So yeah, Fafnir's back. How long is he going to stick around? I guess we will all find out together. Now, I've read the original prose story, and issue 17 deviates from the original as we're getting to the end of the issue, along with, of course, a couple of other ways. First off, the world in which Turlo resides is our world, just in the past. Of course, Conan's world of Hyperborea is supposed to be our world as well, but it's much, much further in the past than Turlo's. I mean, 10 to 15,000 years and a cataclysm separate the two time frames. Turlo is a Celtic barbarian from Ireland, and Athelstane the Saxon is, well, he's a Saxon. The Saxons, if you're not aware, were a group of Germanic peoples whose name was given in the early Middle Ages to a large country near the North Sea coast of northern Germania in what is now Germany. Athelstane, however, is from Wessex meaning he's an English Saxon or Anglo-Saxon. The English Saxons became a single nation, bringing together migrant Germanic peoples and assimilated Celtic Britain's populations. Thanks, Wikipedia! Well, I looked it up on the Wikipedia. So, in the prose story, Turlow is on a ship that's attacked by Vikings. His life is spared by Athelstane the Saxon, who is sailing with the Vikings. Like Fafnir with Conan, Athelstane knocks Turlow out. And when the gale wakes, he's lashed to the mainmast of the Viking ship. A gale, by the way, is a member of the Gaelic-speaking peoples inhabiting Ireland, Scotland, and the Isle of Man. It's used a lot in the prose version, and I had no idea what it meant, and so I looked it up. You're welcome. Anyway, the Viking ship goes down, and while there is mention of sharks, there's no talk of Turlow fighting it. Regardless, Turlow and Athelstane wind up on a strange island where Turlow wants to fight because he hates Northmen. And while Athelstane isn't a Northman, he's in league with him, so he's just going to have to do. Before they can start fighting, however, 
an inhuman shrieking sounds from the jungle, and the two decide that they may want to team up to fight whatever made that sound. Soon, a half-naked blonde girl comes running from the jungle, pursued by a 12-foot-tall monstrous bird with a cruel hooked beak. The two warriors kill the bird and learn that the girl is Brunhild, a Northman who disappeared at sea and wound up here on this island where she claims she was once queen. It seems that, well, according to Brunhild, I found a strange, terrible people dwelling here, a brown-skinned folk who knew many dark secrets of magic. They found me lying senseless on the beach, and because I was the first white human they had ever seen, their priests divined that I was a goddess given to them by the sea whom they worship. Because, yeah, the only white person among a group of brown-skinned people is gonna be a god. I mean, I wouldn't have immediately leaped to such a racist trope in this story, but it is Robert E. Howard, and the man was a screaming racist. So what other conclusion am I supposed to come to? Anyway, she was taken to the city of Valsagath, and despite her being worshipped, she was nothing more than a puppet for the high priest Gothan until she caught the eye of a dude named Kotar, and the two plotted against Gothan. After a very bloody rebellion in which many died, Brunhild became queen and goddess of Balsagoth on the Isle of Gods. But then Kotar cheated on her with another, and she had them both killed. The problem there was that the people loved Kotar, and Gothan used that to stir them all up and overthrow their queen, putting Gothan back in power. And before the people could change their minds once again, restoring power back to the queen, Gothan took her across the lagoon that separated the island and left her there, naked and helpless, to be eaten by a giant bird. And of course, we know that did not go the way Gothan wanted it to go. Brunhild then enlists the help of the two warriors in regaining her throne, stating that legend says two men of iron will come from the sea to take the city. So they arrive at Balsagath, and that's where issue 17 deviates from the source material. In the original, one of Brunhild's two warriors has to fight in ceremonial combat against Ska, whom Gothen set up as king. And they have to do this to prove that Brunhild was meant to rule. In this case, it's Athelstane that fights Ska. Ska defines who I am as a person, and I will never turn my back on Ska. And as we know in the Conan issue, Conan is the one that fights, and he fights an empty suit of armor that is animated by Gothen using his magic. So while in the original, Athelstane kills Ska, and that's how Brunhild gets all her power back, in the comic, of course, Kiri deduces that Gothen is using his magic to animate that suit of armor, and she uses the reflective qualities of her headband to reflect the sunlight into Gothen's eyes so that he loses concentration and the armor collapses, and therefore Conan wins. This is then, of course, where the issue ends to be concluded by part two and issue number 18. Uh, so we're going to talk about that issue and how it compares to the second half of the original pro story in the next episode. So I'm not going to talk any more about the pro story. We'll, we'll do that next time. When it came down to it, though, I did rather enjoy this story. Here in issue 17, there was a lot of action, a lot of fighting and sword play. Conan fights a shark, which is always a plus. 
There's a monster, you know, the lizard slash dinosaur thing, and even an evil dark sorcerer with Gothen. I mean, it has everything that you want in a Conan story, and it just puts it all there. Monster, dark sorcerer, fighting, and then the bonus of Conan fighting and killing a shark. Gothen, by the way, wears a cobra headdress that looks a lot like Serpentor from G.I. Joe. And it makes me wonder if Gothen was the visual inspiration for the future cobra leader. This I command! Or at least Gothen's head may have been the inspiration. Anyway, I rather enjoy Gil Kane's art, especially in this issue, though he does tend to draw armor in such a way that I feel like he's designing action figures for He-Man. And don't get me wrong, I really like that. I think it looks pretty awesome. It just doesn't fit the look that we've gotten used to in this title with Barry Windsor Smith. But beyond that, beside that, whatever, still, it's a good issue. And while it doesn't rate as high as The Lurker Within, uh, Keepers of the Crypt, or even Rogues in the House, It certainly doesn't sit near the bottom with the Garden of Fear, a sword called Stormbringer, and the Green Empress of Melnibene. It was just a good, solid Conan issue, and I'm looking forward to seeing how part two falls into place. How about you? What'd you think? Stephen or else at gmail.com. And hey, speaking of which, how about we do some listeners' feedback? Right, so our first bit of feedback comes by way of a text on the voice line. Just wanted to let you know that I found your Hither Came Conan podcast. I am really enjoying it. I read the original Howard books in the 80s and was a Savage Sword subscriber. I recently picked up the Conan Epic Collection and am re-enjoying each issue as I try to catch up. Thanks for a great podcast, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Uh, I am a bit jealous that you were a Savage Sword Conan subscriber back in the day. That's a magazine I would love to see show up in my mailbox every month. It'd be interesting to know if the upcoming Titan Savage Sword of Conan title is going to be magazine-sized and if they will offer a subscription through the mail because I would be all over that. That would make a, a great Christmas present for me. The next bit of feedback comes by way of email. Hey, Stephen, really been digging the podcast. I've listened to the first couple of episodes and the Titan ones. And I just wanted to take a moment to thank you and encourage you to continue your journey. I still haven't read the earliest Marvel issues, so I'm going to try out experiencing them through your coverage of them first. I have read the Howard Tales and many Marvel Conan the Barbarian issues from later years, and many of the old Savage Sword of Conan magazine issues, of which I proudly own many. Getting close to having the full run from around 80 through 200, with a smattering of earlier ones. There's just something incomparable about holding one of those original black and white magazines in hand for a read. Also, I wanted to strongly implore you to read Cole. The Del Rey collection is the way to go, and there's an audiobook version of it, But man, the Illos by Matthew Sweet are not to be missed. I love Conan, but I think I favor Cole more. And Brule is very high on my list of favorite Howard characters. Favorite characters, period, really. The Cole comics are also great fun, 
especially the couple final Marvel runs in the 80s, of which you have a couple issues. The only two coal I don't have, ironically. Well, I don't have all the Dark Horse coal stuff. Speaking of Dark Horse, I am a huge fan of the Busick Nord and Truman Giarello runs, plus some of the wood stuff with Clunan and Heron. You gotta get to that stuff. As to your query, it has been speculated that Conan descends from Cole. Certainly, Samiria does from Atlantis. By Mitra, Krom, Valka, and Hotath, keep up the great work, a dedicated listener. Well, dedicated listener, thank you for the email. To address a couple of your points, first, I actually do have the Cole audiobook, which is just called Cole. I don't know if it's the Del Rey version, but I'll have to look. Anyway, I've recently started in on the Sword of Shannara or Shannara. I've heard it both ways. Uh, but I plan on following through with at least the next two Shannara books after that. So it may be a bit before I get into Cole, but it's on my list most definitely. Uh, I also want to start digging into the Cole comics, but that might be a bit as well. As for the Dark Horse Conan books, I've been rereading those. And I plan on doing episodes about him, but a little news here. I'm currently working through a rebrand and a relaunch of my Patreon. I'll let you guys know uh, you're the first to hear this. Well, one other has heard this. He helped me come up with the name, or at least he helped me decide amongst the names that I had chosen. But wow, I'm I'm getting really far into this. Anyway, it's going to be called the Super Secret Steven Society. And it's going to be a bit before I get it all into place. But One of the things I'm going to be doing is putting any of those Dark Horse Conan episodes I record up there first on the Patreon for at least 60 to 90 days before I put them out on the main feed for everyone. I will have more information on that in the future, but know that I will be doing episodes on the Dark Horse Conan comics. It's just, it'll be a long, it'll be a while before folks on the main feed have access to them. Beyond that, thanks for the info on Cole and his possible relation to Conan. Uh, Just like the Dan feedback before you, I'm super jealous of all the Savage Sword of Conan magazines you own. That those those might be fun to go out and try to uh, try to collect. Anyway, that's our feedback for this week. Thanks again to Don and a dedicated listener for reaching out. If you'd like to write in and provide feedback, ask questions, or 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 whatever. There are a variety of ways to do it, all of which are in the show notes. But just in case, the email is stevenorels at gmail.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-O-R-R-E-L-S-E at gmail.com. And the voice line is 785-318-6673. You can use the voice line to send me texts or even leave a voicemail. Again, that's 785-318-6673. So yeah, with that, it's time to wrap up the show, folks. Come back next time as we take a look at Conan the Barbarian number 18, The Thing in the Temple from June of 1972, which will conclude our two-part Gil Kane penciled story based on The Gods of Balsagoth by Robert E. Howard. Until then, my barbarian children, keep your swords close by and never stop treading them jeweled thrones. Bye! 
Hither Came Conan is a Stephen or Else production. Find more podcasts at stephenorelse.com. Questions and comments can be directed to stephenorelse at gmail.com. Find me online at Twitter, Spoutable, and Instagram by searching for at Stephen or Else. And join my newsletter, Stephen Says Stuff, at list.justanotherfanboy.com. This is a free substack where I will send every single podcast episode I host right to your inbox the morning that they are released. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month over at the Patreon by going to patreon.com slash Stephen R. Orr. And in return, I'm going to do my very best to give you and your fellow patrons podcast episodes just like this one before anybody else. I also encourage you to rate this show wherever available and share this episode with a friend. All links will be in the show notes. As the issue opens, Conan and his gay right off the bat. As the issue opens, Conan is a passenger on a Turanian galley that currently bobbly. Currently. And now my cat wants to leave the desk where he has been sitting all morning, which means I have to move stuff around and move it back so that he can safely jump to the floor. Oh, good God almighty. The Vanner Nim. <laughs> I think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. Then the hell with you. Enough talk. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.